Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Before we get on with the interview with Julie, I should let you know about my latest book. It's called The Windsor Method, subtitled The Principles of Solo Training. And, well, I'll read you the formal blurb, which begins, The secret behind all great artists is how they practice. The Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training, is the self-help book for people who want to add years to their life and life to their years. In this refreshingly straightforward and gentle guide, best-selling author and world-renowned historical swordsmanship instructor Dr. Guy Windsor lays out the fundamental principles behind personal development and excellence in any field. How? By establishing a solid foundation and a step-by-step approach to mechanics and training. This is The Windsor Method. Use it to guide your practice and elevate your skills. Now, obviously, I think it's quite a good book. But what do other people have to say about it? Well, Dr. Andrew Somio, who is an MD and he's the head coach of Seattle Escrima. He's a master instructor in Latosa Escrima, Lonin Longsword League senior instructor and competition coach. And I should also say he's a friend of mine. Well, I sent it to him and my friends are honest with me and this is what he says. It's a pleasure and a privilege to review Guy Windsor's work on solo practice. Working from vast personal experience, understanding of multiple traditions centuries old, and modern understanding of education, learning, and motivation, he has produced an extremely useful and approachable book on sustainable, healthy practice and its underpinnings. Starting from first principles, Guy takes you through the prerequisites for developing a practice, provides specifics to implement, then addresses barriers, all in a tone which invites and encourages. I wholeheartedly recommend this work to practitioners of any level. And if that doesn't make me blush, I don't know what would. So, the book is coming out on August the 5th, 2021, on all the usual retailers in paperback, hardback, large print editions and the rest. But it is currently available right now as an ebook only at guywindsor.net forward slash solo. So, you can skip along and get yourself an ebook there if you wish. Now, without further ado, on with the show. I'm here today with Julie Olson, senior instructor at the Athena School of Arms and a director of the Iron Gate Exhibition, the largest New England historical martial arts event. She's also well known on the Longsword Tournament circuit, and I should also point out that I met Julie at Sword Squatch a few years ago, and she had the, shall we say, excellent good taste to. Um, hired me to come over to Boston and teach a seminar for the Athena School of Arms, which was great fun. So we've actually met in person and trained together and what have you. So without further ado, Julie, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. So where in the world are you? Uh, I live in um, Exeter, New Hampshire, which is about an hour north of Boston, where my school is. So beautiful credit state. Oh, lovely. And you have um, like a fairly long commute to class then i do yeah um before pandemic i was going down two or three days a week so this pandemic has been a little bit of a nice break from my gas mileage to only go down once a week (laughs) (laughs) wow okay so um how did you get started in historical martial arts 
Uh, I had been a sport fencer for quite a long time, and I was teaching at a club um, a half hour from me, and I was doing that twice a week, and uh, that was not busy enough for me, so I thought, I'll just, you know, I, I want to do something um, different, and um, separate to that, I went to a um, sci-fi fantasy convention in Boston, and I was wearing this kind of dumb you know, get up costume pirate thing. I had a rapier, a stage safe rapier hooked to my belt. It was, you know, safety tied off. So I couldn't actually use it because those are the rules for, for that place. And, um, a gentleman approached me and said, hi, would you like to learn how to use that? I said, actually, I do know how to use this because I have done foil fencing forever. Um, and then learned this guy's name, uh, Stephen Hirsch, uh, was running a club and he was giving demonstrations there and invited me to attend. Um, he was just trying to get people to come to his demo. And I went and there were, it was a very well received demo. Like the, I think there were like 30 people there, which is pretty big for a panel at a sci-fi sure. convention. So, um, I watched the demo. I did their beginner long sword, you know, they, they give a demonstration. Then they give like a low class, like here, hold a sword. This is, we'll show you some moves, you know, Hey, cool. Yeah. Um, and I signed up for their intro class, and I haven't stopped since. <laughs> so was that Athena School of Arms? That was, yep, yep. So um, that was run by Stephen Hirsch um, and Andrew Kilgore at the time. Um, and then after a few years, I guess I proved myself enough that uh, myself and Nathan Weston now run it with Andrew. And Stephen runs one of the programs now, too. But uh, we're now a nonprofit school. And um, we've grown the club from, and there were four or five of us initially down to up to um, almost 45 people. So that's a good number. We're doing really, really good. Yeah. Excellent. That was eight, eight years ago, also. I've been doing this for about eight years. So <laughs> fantastic. And it is really, really satisfying when your students kind of come up to the point where you can just let them get on with it and run the club and teach the classes. And yeah, it is, it is the most satisfying thing for an instructor. So I bet Steve is delighted with the way things have gone. I think so, yeah. <laughs> Good. Um, now, obviously you have a sport fencing background and if any system is adapted to the tournament, it's sport fencing. Oh, yeah. And it's so, it is so perfectly adapted to the tournament environment. Um, and you have a pretty strong interest in historical martial arts tournaments. Mm -hmm. So what are the main benefits as you see them and how do you think they could be improved? Uh, the main benefit I see is, you know, being able to stress test what you know, uh, mm -hmm. because tournaments are very, you know, com competition itself is, is very stressful. It, it's, you know, hard on your nerves. It's hard on your body. Um, mainly nerves, I think more than anything. So just learning how to steel yourself against those feelings and learning to focus through the mess that's in your brain and um, try to work the techniques against someone who does not want to, you to work those techniques at all and, and try to hamper that completely. Um, okay. Yeah. I'd say. I need, uh, sorry. So, um, so that's, that's the main benefit. You get to stress test what you know. Um, is that the, like, the ultimate goal of tournaments, do you think? And do they serve that as well as they could? For, for me, that's the main goal, you know, because we're, it's, it's one thing, you know, to practice something statically in the air, or practice with a training partner. You could say, all right, guys, now we're going to do this, you know, with fervor, mm -hmm. you know, do, do, do the thing harder. And, but we're still friends, we're competing, but I think it really changes the dynamic when you go against someone like, uh, at least in the New England scene, we're all very 
we're a close knit community of practitioners. Mm -hmm. We know generally everyone, then we're all friendly, but it is still different to go against someone at a different club and like, all right, I'm going to do my thing. Let's see if it works against you. And you have a different, either different style or, or just different way of doing things. So, um, for me still, that's uh, on top of, you know, the camaraderie of, you know, going with your team to, to go to a tournament and stuff. But, um, yeah, my main view is just, it's a good way to practice and try to improve yourself. Yeah, it's it's certainly a natural environment where where like the comp the competitive side of things is kind of built into it. So yeah. you don't have to artificially create it; it's already there. Everyone yeah. shows up expecting that, and so it's not like when you're training with your friends where you actually have to kind of make a deliberate mental switch mm -hmm. from this is regular practice where we're sort of coaching each other, or whatever, and now we're actually going to compete. Right. Um, okay. So how could tournaments be improved, do you think? Uh, or are they already perfect? I mean, that's a legitimate answer. <laughs> no, no, nothing is perfect. <laughs> no, um, I think there's different levels to that question. Like the actual format of tournaments could always be improved. Um, the goal mm -hmm. of the tournament, I think, is sound. I can't think of any other loftier goal for tournaments other than stress testing what you know and just really try to prove yourself to yourself and, and, and to spectators, if there are any, you know, like I know this technique, I'm a practitioner, it works. I've kept myself safe and I have, you know, encumbered my opponent somehow. Um, yeah, I, I would probably say format wise, there's always room for improvement, you know, looking at how things are done. Um, one of the things I like about, I'm going to pitch my own, my own, yeah, dude. <laughs> one That's thing, okay. <laughs> one thing I, lo I love about IGX is uh, I get exhibition is that we like to um, try out new ideas and try new ways of doing things and try mm -hmm. new tournaments, try new tournament formats. We're we're very much always looking for the new thing. Um, if there's a really great idea someone else has, we take it, we tweak it a little bit, we try it different, but always you know saying, hey, we got this idea from this other event, um, but. I think we're always trying to grow ourselves, at least in that scene. I think other tournaments are probably doing the same thing. Okay. Um, so, I mean, you've been involved in running a pretty big event. So Iron Gate is not small. So <laughs> what, have, what have you learned from that? It is really important to surround yourself with great people who, mm -hmm. and learning to yourself to delegate to those people. And if, if you need help, just, just raise it in the team meeting. Like, Hey, can someone take this for me? Um, I learned very quickly if I assume, Oh, I'll do all the things, you know, I'll take care of it. No one has to worry. Things will slip and fall apart and things get messed missed and left behind. So being able to comfortably rely on other people is really critical. I think to running a big event. Okay. And um, has being involved in that event like changed anything you do in your regular training? say so and um for for athena I, I wear many hats i'm a senior instructor um i i'm also on the board we're a nonprofit, so i you know i'm, I'm the clerk of the board um so there's a lot of administrative work and mm -hmm. but i think that more falls on me and the immediate um the other board of directors for running the club which is a little different because iron gate has different layers of management and you know, different people take ownership of different tasks okay. and stuff. So I think it's a little different, but I think just understanding how all the pieces fit together and who to go to and who to delegate if you need to, I think that's the similar. Um, 
it occurs to me that I don't think I've gone in depth with anyone on this podcast yet about how a club can be structured and run. Oh, yeah. And it, ju- it just occurred to me right now that you knew that. I mean, I know how I ran my club, but that's a different thing. So would you mind going into some detail about, like, how is the club structured? How do these these various administrative things go? Because the fact is, without the administrative people, there are no clubs. There's nowhere to train. There's no weapons. There's no advertising. No one shows up and nothing actually happens. Yeah. Right. right? And then, and then you know, some... some swanky person with a sword shows up and gets all the credit for <laughs> for all the work that all the admin team have done right and it's usually me that's the swanky person showing up with a sword because yeah. because these days i don't even run a club I, I i teach at various clubs but i have absolutely no um administrative responsibilities for any club that must right? feel so a, good. oh it's amazing <laughs> yeah I, re- I retired from that sort of thing about about six years ago five years ago uh, um, yeah, because the club, my various clubs have got to the point where they just didn't need me to do any of that stuff. And so why would I? And so I awesome. formally, I formally withdrew myself from the running of any clubs, including my, my original school in Helsinki. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, I, I have all of that mental space now free for doing things like, um, you know, studying Fiore and writing books and that sort of thing. So, okay. That's awesome. But I, I'm I'm rubbish at admin. Okay, I spreadsheets hurt my face. I don't have anything to do with them, and I did once successfully manage to make a column of a column in a spreadsheet come up with a sum at the end, and that is that is the that is the total of my administrative <laughs> skills. Yay! I delegate everything, right? So so how how is Athena structured and run? Uh, so currently we're, we're a nonprofit, uh, 501c3. That's, that's our term in the U S, um, mm-hmm. nonprofit. So we are organized by board of directors, which is mostly instructors. <laughs> um, right. myself and Nathan, um, are the, uh, he's the president. I'm, I'm the clerk. So I kind of manage all of the, um, record bookkeeping, keeping the organized admin stuff together. Right. And then uh, Robin Allman, I know you had her on the podcast. She's our treasurer, mm-hmm. so she in charge of the finance. So those are the three right. main roles. And then we have two other board members who offer voices and to weigh in on any decisions that need to be made. Under that, our our head our instructor pool, which is mostly you know the the board directors, like I said, and a few other um, assistant instructors. Um, and I would say it falls to the senior instructors to set the curriculum and the ideals of what we want the club to do and how we want them to progress and grow. Um, if you're actively teaching a class, you're largely in charge of writing the lesson plan with help uh, from the senior instructor because we've been at it a little bit longer and we kind of know the vision of the curriculum. So maybe we can offer some insights on what the actual individual class lesson should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have your assistant, assistant instructors who help uh, the instructors and head instructors and then everyone else. <laughs> And that's evolved. Like we started with originally um, when I joined the club, there were four or five of us and it was just being run by Steven. You know, it was a private thing that he organized and it just has grown. And as more needs were needed, more people stepped in and it just kind of evolved organically based on the needs of what the club needed. Right. And there are legal requirements for being a nonprofit. Yeah, we need insurance. Um, we, we own the lease to the building where we currently practice. So there's all oh, kinds of, yeah, we do. Um, 
That happened. Okay, tell us about that. Yeah, uh, I, I have to thank Nathan. <laughs> he, he was <laughs> really one driving all of that. Um, but we were originally uh, subleasing with uh, a kung fu school out of this uh, our current the space you went right, to. That, yeah, the space. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so actually, I think when you got there, that was probably the first year or so where we were the lease owners of that space. So before we were just subletting from uh, the Kung Fu School, and then um, the owner of that organization decided to allow us to take over the lease because he wanted to move on and do other things. So mm-hmm. one of the instructors stayed, so we basically flipped roles. So now Athena owns the lease, so we get um, the joy of working with the building owner, Um navigating through if the building is going to be sold or not, um, any okay. maintenance things that need to happen. So um, that's another whole administrative part that's kind of a headache. <laughs> so so by lease owner, basically that means you are the primary renters of the space. Exactly, yeah. Right, so okay. any, any other programming that happens in that space, um, any funding Down feeds into Athena, and then we send the check to the building owner, and we're the sole responsible people of that space if something goes wrong okay it falls on us so it's a big deal when a club gets its own space mm-hmm. it's it's really allowed us the ability to to run more events and just open ourselves up to more programming that wouldn't yeah. be possible otherwise if we just met at a gym which we've done before you know just me in a you know back yeah. corner of a boxing gym <laughs> yeah when when i moved to finland in 2001 i rented a school gyms and a, a room in the Olympic Stadium um, like three nights a week hmm. and but literally the day after I arrived in Helsinki I started looking for a permanent space and it took me about three months to find one hmm. and then I, I rented this fairly small like 100 square meter which is I guess it's about a thousand square feet um, that's not bad which yeah yeah it's, it's enough 16 with long swords was a fairly tight fit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that's yeah, it's a reasonable size. And literally the moment we had a permanent space where people could leave their gear and we could store weapons and you didn't have to schlep your big bag of swords from one place to another. And yeah, it, and it just opened up all sorts of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for example, like having guest instructors not having to find and rent and pay for a space for the weekend, which is when everybody wants the space, mm-hmm. right? Makes getting guest instructors over like super easy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, and I've seen it like in, in several of my, my branches and the, the schools I'm associated with, there's that kind of phase shift when they go from being, um, you know, two hours a week, two hours on Thursday nights in that place and, hour and a half on Monday night in that place and two hours on Sunday morning over there. And, and then when they get their own space 24 seven, it's like, Oh my God, we can do all this stuff. All the stuff, all the yeah. things we have. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so that space is now entirely yours. Is the Kung Fu school not subletting it from you? Oh yeah. No, they, they are subletting it. So they have it mostly in the mornings and a little into like the early evening. And then we have mm-hmm. it basically all night, every night of the week for classes and which works well because we have mostly we have all adults so you know daytime schedules it works pretty well so so what's your schedule like so uh well we're gonna be reopening fully uh the last week of this month which is very exciting Mm -hmm. so currently um we're still working in our structured pods and classes are only about 50 minutes when we reopen we'll be back to 90 minute classes um 
every, so we have a beginner and an intermediate long serve program uh, classes, and those will meet twice a week for 90 minutes. Uh, we have a broad serve program that will be meeting, I think they're still staying on Tuesday nights, and that's for an hour and a half. Um, mm -hmm. Thursdays have recently opened up, so we'll probably be looking to add more programming, either maybe a competitive long sword class or maybe a rapier class or something to get into more um, niche um, focus areas for our students. And Saturdays usually wide open. Saturdays are days to do, you know, cutting practice and any miscellaneous open floor training time. Okay, and like guest instructor seminars, like mine. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, yes. I'm very yeah. That's the one thing I've really missed is being able to invite instructors to come and and, and show sure. us how to do things. So I'm very excited <laughs> to open that back up again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we had, I, I was scheduled to come over in April last year for yeah. my second trip to Boston, and yeah, that didn't happen. Soon, hopefully, we can we can re, re, re yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we we need to re, reschedule that at some point. Okay, yeah. So, um, just bring things back to physical practice. What have been your biggest challenges in terms of like taking up the sword and training during what, the pandemic? The hardest thing during the pandemic or in general? Uh, lately, during the pandemic, is just getting the motivation <laughs> to do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. In general. Um, I can't think of any other than the actual challenge of just training because I'm a shorter fighter and around much taller fighters. So there's always the mm -hmm. juxtaposition of, you know, height and weight differences for that. But um, I can't say I've had any struggles with training. I've had a really great group of people to work with and I've been able to go, you know, to train whenever I need to and get the stuff I need out of it. So I've been very lucky. I've had a really blessed human experience so far <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah so during the pandemic getting motivated so have you been training much during the pandemic not not as much i we have been we reduced our schedule so i've only been going down once a week uh which actually mm -hmm. has been good as i mentioned for for my guest mileage um just getting down there but also for my own mental health um doing a lot of traveling and training and stuff it was starting to get a little stressful for me so this pandemic actually offered a little bit of a relief just to step back, work on some house projects, mm -hmm. just refocus my energies, my creative energies elsewhere, and just kind of take a step back. Um, it's also tricky. I do live, uh, take ownership of that. I do live far away by <laughs> uh, <my laughs> choice. Um, sure. So um, it, it is harder to train by myself because I, I like feeling the energy of other people around me. So yeah. I'm just by myself and my lovely home it's just me and my cat and my sir like well i can swing the sword in the air you know this is great but it doesn't feel the same as having it feels pointless doesn't it kind of kind of yeah. and a part of me is like but no you are you know a, a, a strong practitioner in the art you should be able to do this by yourself like but i don't like to <laughs> i like having yeah. people <laughs> and, and you know what i have the same problem right yeah. my absolute favorite like context for swordsmanship is teaching a class that's my favorite thing to do yeah. Right. Um, given the choice between that and actual fencing or research or any of the other things, I would be up in front of a class. It's my best place. Right. Yeah. Um, and I knew that at the beginning of the pandemic, oh God, okay, I'm not going to be traveling much. Normally, okay, I've got a, I'm teaching a seminar in a, like six weeks' time in Seattle or Boston or wherever. Okay. I have to show up reasonably fit because otherwise it's embarrassing. So I have a motivation to kind of stay fit so that I can you know, 
do my job properly. But with no seminars booked, it was really, really difficult to just to bother. And like mm-hmm. one morning in, I think it was May or June, I think it was May last year, I got up to do my regular training, got out of bed, did my regular training, and I did literally two squats and one push-up. <laughs> and I thought, fuck it, that'll do. <laughs> right? Uh, and then, and then, and then I'm like, yeah, th- this is not leading in a good direction, but I just can't be bothered. I just don't care. If I'm not going to be teaching, yeah. what's the point? I don't, I don't yeah. need to be fit. I don't care. Yeah. Right? So what I did was I started, um, there's three mornings a week, a train-along session where people can just, people can like sign up for the class and it's free or five quid depending on, you know, people can choose for themselves whether they pay or not, it doesn't matter. And the thing is, having students show up means firstly that I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Secondly, that I'll do it much more thoroughly and properly because the students are there, mm-hmm. right? I, I have to set a good example. And what it did is it completely took away all of the self-discipline aspect of it. So mm-hmm. even if I do absolutely nothing, I'm still teaching this hour-long conditioning class three mornings a week, right? And if I do nothing else, that is always happening. And it, yeah, it, it saved me, I think, because otherwise by now I would be, you know, twice the size and, <laughs> but no taller. <laughs> it's important having a purpose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and for me, it's the students. It's that they're the reason I do it. So yeah, that's your purpose ha- is having, right. having, yeah. Yeah. And even if, like, if, even if it was just one student showing up, you have to be there. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and normally we have this nice little cadre of, of students, which is about six or seven of them. So on any given session, we might have three, four or five, maybe, mm-hmm. um, occasionally six or seven. And from like New Zealand and, and Finland and, uh, Holland and Germany and no one from Britain and of course it's the wrong time of day for the Americans although we did have an American who was showing up at three three thirty in the morning for him for a while because well he was a roadie so um, but yeah it's just for me it was the critical thing was finding finding a way to get the training done that didn't require self discipline mm-hmm. and yeah that that worked for me. That's awesome. Um, maybe you should try it. Yeah. Because you're, you're an instructor too. So, you know, you get this. If, if the students are there, you have access to more patience and strength and, like, depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay. So, um, we should discuss protective equipment. Because literally everyone I interview has a pretty strong opinion about protective gear. And of course, with coronavirus, PPE is on everyone's minds, masks and what have you. So what are your thoughts on protective equipment, training tournaments and the rest? I think it's getting better, but I think there's still room for growth. for being a smaller fighter, um, I know you've, you've interviewed some other people who are similar stature to myself. It's just very hard to find gear that fits and does mm-hmm. the thing it's supposed to do just on a miniature <laughs> scale. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing. Um, but I do like watching in, in my 
time in HEMA, just watching every tournament year, the gear kind of starts to shift and change and improve mm. and do style changes. And, and just, I think just our number of vendors available to produce product has grown substantially in the last four or five years, I would say. Sure. There's just a lot more options out there, which, which is great. But I think um, having the availability to get gear for shorter, smaller people is still lacking. Um, for me, it's hard even just to measure myself because they give you a measurement guide and like, all right, this is how I want you to measure yourself for, for your custom gear, which is also going to be more expensive because we have to sure. make it size to you. And even just getting the right measurements down is, is tricky. It's just, it's just still not as smooth as it could be, <laughs> I would say. Okay. So like, how, how do you feel about the way tournaments, for instance, um, the equipment requirements for tournaments, head injuries, concussion, that kind of thing? Uh, I think so. It may be just because the, the, my narrow focus of where I travel to is, is, mm -hmm. is skewing this, but I think everywhere I've been to has been well thought out as far as what is required for tournaments. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the only thing I, I struggle with personally is some tournaments require groin protection for females and I personally don't wear one and I haven't had a, thankfully knock on wood, haven't had a reason to wear one. Um, <laughs> but um, no, I feel like largely um, the requirements are, make sense that like they're common sense, right? Like you, you must have a mask and a gorget and gloves, you know, that are X, you know, padded and your mask must meet a certain, you know, um, Newton threshold and, um, I don't feel like people are deliberately trying to skirt around the requirements. It's more just, Oh, I don't have my gear in time. Okay. Let's find, you know, a supplement to make sure that you're safe. So you're, you're happy with fencing masks as head protection. I'm wondering if that's a trick question. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Okay. Let, let, let me get some context. I'm, I'm absolutely okay. not trying to trap you and we okay. can always edit anything out that, that comes across wrong. Um, but, um, there have been quite a few instances of concussions through fencing masks because long sort the, the fencing mask itself was designed to work against foils, epées, and sabers in the sport fencing milieu, right? So very light, very flexible weapons, mm -hmm. and they do a very good job of defending against those weapons and dealing with those kinds of forces. They have not been designed to deal with a three-pound, four-foot-long steel bar. That's being right. swung at your head mm -hmm. um, and I, I actually have a, a scar on the back of my head from, from where a flamberge bladed longsword came down a bit too far back and it caved in the back arch oh, of the no. mask it caved it in and it split my scalp um, entirely my own fact there's actually a photograph of that very moment um, on my blog because someone I think it was my girlfriend at the time was was taking photographs of the fight and there's a photograph of that actual moment of oh. my head getting split open. Oh dear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it was fine. It was fine. It was fine. Um, so, you know, I have a, I, I have no faith whatsoever in fencing masks as, as head protection for longsword. Mm -hmm. okay? I have a lot more faith in, for example, the Terry Tyndall style fencing masks, which have an internal suspension system and the whole thing is like a big steel shell that is balanced on your head on the suspension system, so it moves. I don't think when, I've seen that. Um, well, I can, I can show you one. Oh, okay. Uh, this is no use to the listeners, of course, but... 
Oh, that. Okay. Yeah, those. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're, seen... they're relatively common these days. Yeah. Because, um, and yeah, Terry stopped making them himself, but um, you can find them at horsebows.com, I think. Okay. Um, so, some of my guests have been just appalled at the state of hand protection. Others have been appalled at the state of um, head protection. You seem to be quite happy with both. I, I guess in in indifferent might be better. Like I, I'm okay. It, 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 yeah, it, it works. It works fine for me. Um, I'd say mm-hmm. in, in our region, we generally. I I wish I had statistics because we started to track injuries at IGX and and to to count concussions. And I I don't want to say everyone. I how do I say this? I feel like in our region, we're largely pretty safe and we don't clobber each other. Um, okay. I've been to some events where I have heard that concussions have happened, but I've either not seen them myself or received them, thankfully. Yeah. Um, so I guess my, my experience has been different that I guess I don't have an opinion because what I see in my very tiny slice of the human world has been okay. But I don't want to say that it's perfect and we should stop. We should absolutely not stop. Like, Ultimately, my goal would be to have no equipment. We just press a button and we get like this little shield around skin thin shield. And then we just go nuts. Like that's what I would like personally, just not have any of this big bulky gear, just be able to not have anything, but still have the protection of some third skin that will make you impervious to to anything. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's maybe a a fairly um, difficult ask, but (laughs) maybe, maybe, maybe in a couple hundred years time. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have something like that. You press a button on your belt and you're suddenly you know, yeah. surrounded in this protective force field yeah. so you can fight your friends and not actually get injured. Mm-hmm. That would be kind of fun. That would be fun. But yeah, you, you're talking about getting your mask caved in. I do agree that fencing masks are, are not to probably that standard where, like if, if someone were just a no, no holds barred, just come down as hard as they possibly could, yes, that would ruin the mask. But I don't think... It, it, it's hard like you you on the one hand want the fighter to not be that jerk but on the other hand you also want your gear to protect you from the jerk but we don't I don't want to keep wearing gear to enable people to be jerks well that that's the thing like yes. you wear the equipment so that your partner can hit it yeah if you're not wearing the equipment they can't hit it mm-hmm. so it's you know, wearing a fencing mask is an invitation to get stabbed in the face yeah that's true. I mean, I, I, I also do martial arts as a weapons-based stuff um, with a local jiu-jitsu club, so traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu and traditional Japanese weapons, what have you. And we're using wooden weapons, but we're using no protective equipment of any kind. Mm. And that means that all thrusts to the face are pulled or mm. they're aimed somewhere else. Um, and I have a suspicion that training that way means that when somebody does thrust your face, you may not be able to deal with it because you've mm-hmm. never seen something in that line before. So, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's, it's always a, a kind of a, a balance to strike between wearing the equipment so your partner can hit it, but not wearing so much equipment they feel they can just beat the crap out of you and it's safe. Right. And um, the more gear you wear, the, the less able you are to do these really fine techniques that we're trying to emulate. Well, that's the thing. I mean, one of the, one of the reasons that I just never went into the tournament circuit when it started 
going in like 2003 is that they insisted on plastic gauntlets. And I will not fence longsword unless I'm wearing steel gauntlets. I will not wear plastic gauntlets because mm-hmm. you can't hold the sword properly. And yeah, they're actually pretty good protection most of the time. But I depend on my sword for my protection, not on mm-hmm. my gauntlets. Mm-hmm. And if I can't hold my sword properly, I can't use it to defend my hands properly. Right. So it's like, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's awful. I mean, so I, I just, I'm, I'm just not going to do that because it's just not an area I'm interested in getting into. You know, mm-hmm. learning to fence with these artificial restrictions is just not interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I run my own tournaments with steel gauntlets. And nice. Good. Yeah. Perfect. And, and you know, the, 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 the tournament scene can go off and do their plastic stuff and that's fine. Um, but yeah, the, not a, I never got into it for pretty much for that reason. It was really clearly structured so that the things that I trained to do, I can't do. Um, and again, I don't know what it's like these days so much, but again, back then there was a, most tournaments had a no pommel striking rule. Mm. No steel goal, this and no pommel striking. It's like, I'm a theory fencer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will I, I can fence without using pommel strikes of course I can but why would I want to <laughs> but, but the 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 canonically correct solution to a lot of the problems that show up in a tournament fencing match is a pommel strike and if I'm not allowed to do that then I can't practice the art that I'm training to be good at mm-hmm. so why would I why would I, I mean I've done like a decade or more of sport fencing tournaments so you know, I know what tournaments are good for and how they can be run. And, you know, I've, I've, I've done my tournament fencing in, shall we say, highly adapted styles before. Right. Like foil is not small sword. Right. Sport foil is highly adapted. Right. So I've done that. I don't need to do it again with a different weapon. What would be the point? Right. Um, I do have some uh, gloves for you that you might be interested in trying. They are plastic, but um, okay. they're designed by Jeremy Steflick um, out of the uh, Worcester group in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a welding glove with okay. Kydex, which is plastic. It's a hard plastic, but yeah. Kydex and foam and leather on top. And I have full mobility. Well, it's it's your your middle and your ring finger together, but I have full mobility of all of my fingers. I can feel my sword and they are the best, okay. the best, the best, the best gloves. And okay. Yeah, I, I use I use um, steel gauntlets with a fencing glove inside. So oh, yeah. I have I have like like full mobility of all digits. If I could mm. play the piano without the gloves, I could play the piano with them. But I can't play the piano at all. So I, I, I want to video you now. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I shall I shall I shall see if I can. We actually have a piano in the house because one of my children plays. So I should put on my gauntlets and yeah, and play the piano a little bit. Why or have not? her wear the gauntlets. No, my hands are too small. Oh, okay. Because the thing is, like, one of the things about gloves is they need to fit like a glove. Yes. Right? And if the glove is too big, you lose all of that dexterity. Mm-hmm. So the glove has to fit just right, and then the steel plates, um, you have a bit more flexibility where the plates go if the glove underneath fits perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really where the dexterity comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's... it's, it's you know, a lot of the gloves you buy... The, the actual glove bit if is the wrong shape or the wrong size or whatever. Yeah. And so that's what, what I like. One of the many things I like about steel gauntlets is 
you know, you buy a pair of steel gauntlets, the glove inside them is usually rubbish, like mm-hmm. a gardening glove or something, way too big, way too sloppy. Take it out, put a fencing glove in instead, glue it in and stitch the fingers so mm-hmm. that the glue doesn't peel back. Yeah. And there you have it. Yeah. It's like, Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Just thought. Okay. Now, um, I know you're on a fairly um, tight schedule, so let me get to my next question. (laughs) And I'll try not to do all the talking. Um, (laughs) My next question is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? I was trying to think of an answer for this, and the only one I can think of is not human-related at all. Doesn't Um, matter. That's fine. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Years ago, I was part of a LARP. And I forget how I got on this track, but I conceptualized a, a pirate-themed LARP with actual boats. Oh, wow. And you would get, like, two <laughs> miniature, like, like not full tall mast, but, like, two basically tall mast ships and run sailing camp, because I, I like sailing, sailing camp-style programming. And at the end of it, you have a couple um, sea battles between the two ships, and it would be a LARP thing. And oh, fantastic. never, never done anything with it. It's always been like, a, oh, this would be really cool. No one's done this before. And probably why is because <laughs> yeah, yeah. Prohi- prohibitive for many reasons, but I don't know. It can be done though. I mean, at the ISMAC convention in Lansing many moons ago, they did a, they, they had a pirate, like a pirate combat class oh. run by, run by John Lennox. Okay. You need to speak to John Lennox, Dr. Okay. John Lennox. Uh, I, I know he, of him. I've never spoken with him, but I know of him. I will be very glad to put you in touch. Um, I'm just making a note to remind myself to do that. Okay. <laughs> because John ran a class. I actually still have one of the T-shirts from the class, which, um, like, boring party, the only party with a, like, 100% mortality rate or something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but they actually, they actually managed to borrow a boat or a ship, a small ship, yeah. To do to do some piratey stuff on. Which oh is very no, cool. that's awesome! But of course, what what we want what we want is to be able to swing from one deck to the other. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And and to and practice sailing, navigating, and, and maneuvers with these really big boats. But yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So I I think I think what you're describing is totally doable. Mm-hmm. I'm I sure it is. Just, I just need money and time be... and and boats. <laughs> It's it's going to be expensive because, yeah. but um, actually, it doesn't necessarily need to be that expensive. Because like, there are plenty of places you can go where where you go on like pleasure cruises or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And you can rent the boat for a pleasure cruise. And if you get two boat owners who happen to <laughs> like pirates, <laughs> and are willing, also and are willing, minded, <laughs> yeah. I, there must be that. Okay, if any if anybody is listening to this who is a sailor and has a ship that might be of use in this sort of scenario, then then by all means oh get in gosh. touch with me and I will pass you <laughs> along to Julie. And that would be that would be so funny. Because <laughs> I think I think we should make this happen. I really do. That would be funny. And um, uh, Brass Frog Assault of Arms. Uh, two, every I keep freaking twenty twenty two two or three years ago at this point they did a. Yep. S- a, a, a game gamified sparring thing that was kind of the sa- a boarding party scenario where they taped out you know two rectangles like these are your ships everyone has a balloon on their head you have your cudgel with your stick and yeah. um it was kind of capture the flag i think and there were two um taped out bridges so you can only go across between these things and um it was 
hilarious. It was, it, it was, it was dumb, but it was awesome. And sorry, Jeremy, I'm not saying your idea was dumb. It was, it was just, it was, it was stupid fun, um, hilarious. Um, and I think, yeah, there was a round robin system. So there were like teams of three, but there were five teams. So we took turns uh, in this tiered system to try and see which team would be the best boarding party. It was, that's fantastic <laughs> and yeah you, you could have people up the mast with paintball guns yeah yeah wouldn't that be cool that would be cool that was also the year they brought out um those rubber band pistols that oh i remember those yeah yes. we didn't get to use them during that but some people had them and oh boy fun 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 yeah. fun yeah <laughs> okay um so i think i know the answer to my next question uh, someone gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, what would you do with it? So I, I think you know Pirates! what I think. Pirates! <laughs> Pirates! Pirates are cool. Actually, no. Well, yes. I, I have many, many ideas. Uh, that, okay, well, have, have two million dollars then. Two million dollars. Okay, so there you go. What, one million, I'd like to make my, my skin tight, you know, shield thing for, for sparring. So, you know, we can be fully mobile and, and do our sparring and, and not have to wear gear. I don't think you can develop that for a million dollars. I don't, I don't <laughs> okay. think that's going to work. Prototype. Maybe, maybe maybe just a new mask. A new mask that does that does all the things. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. Pie, pie in the sky. Pie in the sky. Yeah. Um, then I guess this is also a stretch goal. Um, invent a time machine and grab Johannes Lichtenauer and bring him back here and tell us what we're doing right and wrong. Well, first, the first the first thing <laughs> I think I think you'd probably say you're doing wrong is none of you are sufficiently posh to be allowed to swing swords anyway. Yeah, like, that's what, what are you doing? What are you doing with long swords? These are for gentlemen. Yeah. Put them down, peasants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get to use messes. <laughs> it would be I I I often come back to just thinking like what would they think of what we're doing now. And like, we're playing the worst version of telephone right now, looking at these sources and trying to figure out what they meant by very little and how much are we getting right. And I think we're largely getting things pretty well correct. But it'd be really great just to talk to the source and to be like, what do you think? How are See, we doing? I, <laughs> I, I think, I think we're getting pretty close in terms of like technical, basic technical execution of basic technical actions. I think those are pretty much down I mean, obviously, there'll be variations between masters and variations between students, and not everyone's going to do the Zor and Howell the same way. But I think we've got most of that pretty much solid. I'd be surprised if there are any major technical changes. By major technical changes, I mean the sort of difference that a beginner can spot. Mm -hmm. Not a subtle shift of edge alignment or a slight change of grip, like, but like major gross choreography. Um, yeah. But I think the way we train and the context we train towards is completely different. Oh, yeah. Um, Society is just so different now. and Yeah, and it's a bit like the difference between being good at paintball and actually being a military officer. Yeah. We're, we're basically paintballers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, okay, so your million dollars will go on either this magical protective gear <laughs> yes. or a or, magical time machine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Re realistically, like, th those are my, like, if we had all the money in the world, if we could do that thing, that'd be really cool. But whatever, because we talked earlier just about how um, 
freeing it is to have your own space. Um, mm -hmm. I think some of your other guests have said this, so I'll just copy what they're saying. If there's a way to build more schools so more people can have a spot to go and learn training, leave their mm -hmm. gear somewhere, just have a safe space to do this thing that we love so much, um, that's probably more achievable with a million dollars. That's definitely achievable with a million dollars. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I know, because I achieved it with an awful lot less than that. Yeah, yeah. And so, and you guys have it too, so... And it hasn't cost you a million. I mean, I know rent in Boston is incredible, but it's dumb. <laughs> um, but it hasn't cost you a million dollars to have a, a sale for a year. No, no. So if there's some way to form some type of partnership, parent program, something that people can buy into, like, all right, so you want a club here? All right, here's a club, and this is your spot. Go, go, do your thing, and oh, maybe, maybe some kind of like a like a grant system where yeah. a club has been training in a local park or school gyms or whatever and they decide they're ready to find a space and so they find a space but obviously it's it's zoned for like you know it's the the intended renter is some kind of business and so the rent is fairly high and so you then they then apply to this fund to say well look the rent of this place is I don't know three thousand dollars a month we've we can bring in half of that can you do mm -hmm. the rest something exactly. like that maybe yeah that 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 would actually be a really interesting and useful use of the money yeah yes we, we need to find ourselves a million dollars julie yes <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been looking my whole life haven't found it yet but yep <laughs> right do you know what if everyone if everyone in the world bought one of my books we'd have a lot more than that and then then we could do this there you go yeah I, there you I'm, go and I, I did. I did ask you. You don't happen to be writing a book at the moment, do you? I'm not. No. That's a shame. No. Because yeah. then, then you could write the book, and we could plug it, and then everyone would buy it, and then we'd have a million dollars, and we could, you know, subsidise sword fighting schools' rents. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so maybe you should get writing. That, that should. could be your. I I don't know what to write. Like I, my my non. I, f I feel like the longsword book scene is is very well. Presented. I don't think I have much more to add to what's there. Um, my current niche uh, favorite uh, weapon of study right now is is the baton, the Italian baton from you know seventeen eighteen hundreds, um, Seri baton. So mm -hmm. making uh, there there is one translation out there already that is quite good. But if there were, I don't know, I, I sort of thought it might be nice to have another couple options out there, but. Um, or what you could do is, is put together a short like video course on the basics. Mm-hmm. And then That's true. and then if if that goes nicely, you take the transcriptions of those videos and make a book out of it. That's a good idea. Well, I, I that's how I do it. These that's, days. that's how you're like speaking from experience. <laughs> yeah, it's like seriously, seriously. Like sometimes it goes, I write a book and then I produce a course out of it. Sometimes it goes, I produce a course and realize, oh, actually, that could, yeah. Like my theory and practice of historical martial arts book, the section in it dealing with how to recreate historical swordsmanship from historical sources, that whole section was originally tra transcriptions of the videos on my how to recreate historical swordsmanship from historical sources course. I oh. just took the tr transcriptions from those videos and like threw them into my Scrivener writing program. Yeah. And 
there was like a third of the book in really, it, it is appalling looking at transcriptions, how incredibly um, sort of inaccurately and badly I speak. Um, so there's an awful lot of editing with that process, but it's an easy way to get started. Um, so I never thought that. So yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Um, and then, yeah, you know, and these days when I you know, take, I don't know, a podcast interview or something and um, maybe if I've, if I've given an interview and I take that audio and transcribe it and that might be a chapter in a book because mm. if I'm asked to like explain something I tend to have one way of explaining it and then when I've explained it to a person then having that explanation as text it's it's quite easy to edit it into into something that's actually readable mm. so because nice. sitting down in front of a black, blank page is hard but sitting down in front of like 20,000 words that took you two hours to talk into a microphone is a lot easier. I, I do think writing a book, just the idea of writing a book is just very scary and overwhelming. So yeah, bre breaking it down to, oh, you already have this material, now change it, yeah. tweak it for, you know. Yeah, yeah. Convert, con yeah convert these existing texts into something yeah. book-like is, yeah. I, think, I think it's just an easier way to approach it. Yeah. Oh, think on that. That's good. That's a good idea. Okay, and of course, if you if you do write your your um, baton book, you need to come back on the show and tell us all about it, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you know, as you say, you have this niche interest in baton. We haven't actually discussed it, and we have a, a few minutes left. So, if you actually yeah. want to, like, tell us what it is, tell us where it comes from, and why you like it so much, we're all is. I, I will start by why I like it so much because it is so much fun. It is, is longsword without all the faffery of having a cross guard or blade to worry about. You just have a stick and okay. you can whack people with the stick. Um, it, 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 obviously, there, there's more nuances than just that. Um, it's a, th this is coming from uh, Giuseppe, I'm going to butcher it because it's Italian and I'm, I'm not Italian, but uh, Giuseppe uh, Cherry, um, 1700s, 1800s gentleman in... How do you spell his surname? C-E-R-R-I. And I think Google Translate said cherry or something. And I'm like, yeah, ah, that sounds I'm, about right. I'm American, so I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't do the R's either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that gentleman um, was in the military. I, I'm afraid I don't have enough of his history to give more context than that. But um, he generated this um, method of fighting with this uh, call bastoni uh, mm -hmm. baton. Um, that's a little shorter than a longsword, our, our current standards for longsword, um, usually made of ash or oak. Uh, the ones I use are made of rattan because they're, they won't hurt so much if you hit someone yep. with it. Um, and the principles of using it are uh, a lot of flowing like moulinet style mm -hmm. actions. And I'm doing this on the camera, which doesn't help your readers, but basically just drawing really beautiful circles and just a lot of flowing actions using your whole body. Um, as a fighter, I personally struggle with using my hips for things because sport fencing, you don't really use your hips. You just have your linear guarding, you do your stuff, you know, yeah. without moving. So, um, long sword learning to step offline was a big, you know, whoa, my brain just got exploded. <laughs> um, so baton is even more so because there's a lot of, um, at the later section of the book I have, there's a lot of, um, context around what do you do against multiple opponents, which is oh, wow. fascinating to me. Um, just, just the idea of like you, you're, you know, walking in the woods, you have your stick and then you're accosted by, you know, ruffians and, and what do you do? Here's, here's an option for footwork and this, um, 
pattern that could potentially help you. Um, so it's just fun. There's a lot of self-defense stuff in there, just a lot of interesting mechanics stuff, and it's just it's just fun. It's just I, I it looks almost lightsabery just watching people do it, and it yeah. just I picked it up and I just I just love it. It's just instant instant love, instant love. I, I feel like it's like the long story. I have to work hard and like think about it and just really get right, but baton I can just kind of just ah play. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Uh, is it related? Do you think to Lacan, so nineteenth century? Yeah, uh, so Lacan is, is, is one hand and uh, yeah. Baton is, is the two hand. You could use, there are some one-handed strike stuff, but largely it's, it's two hands um, gripping it. So, um, Have you ever been known to make lightsaber noises while doing it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny with the rattan because when, when you throw it really hard, it makes this vroom sound. It's just, yeah, it, just, it sounds it's like a lightsaber. Awesome. Yeah, and yeah. Um, if you hit the rattan against each other and it smells it burns a little bit you have this yes burn smell. Smell. Oh, oh it's the best <laughs> i've i've taught a couple of beginner classes at events just in, with my my big you know um box of rattan i just pass them out and like all right guys you know line up and swing swing like this you know i'm simplifying but basically walk them through how to hold it how to swing it and you hear this room and people start smiling yeah and then we have the pair off like all right so now we're gonna do this pair of post exchange drill and oh i smell something burning like no it's okay it's just <laughs> it's just it's just watching it's people explore and understand how this works is just so much fun okay so if someone if someone listening um is fired up by your enthusiasm as how could they not be and wants to have a go uh, where would you suggest they go looking for information so uh short um i'm gonna butcher this uh so this is a translation by uh chris holzman um okay. uh how about i send it to you in the show notes tratato teorico practico della scherma di bastone which is a treatise theory and practice about fencing with a stick yes yeah okay by giuseppe cherry c-e-r-r-i and um Edited by Gianluca Zanini, and it's translated... By Chris Holzman. Okay. That looks like the Italian version. Yes. Oh, so here, here's the, the page. So English, oh, okay, lovely. By, oh, yeah, yeah. English version revised by uh, Christopher A. Holzman. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think anyone who's interested has, has enough information to go on there. Are there yeah. any, like, video resources for that? There are, actually. Um, I'm forgetting his name, but I got... Um, introduced to a gentleman um, and I'm blanking on his name and where he is, but he's put together a lot of little short clips on this is what, you know, the descending, descending strike, this is what the rising strike and mm -hmm. uh, steps through the, te the techniques really nicely. Um, I'd have to find the YouTube video, but there's a channel find, out find, there. Yeah. Find the YouTube video and send me the link and I'll pop it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there, there's a couple of Facebook groups that are, designed for topics around this and, uh, and around Lacan. So um, there are some groups out there that talk about this and share ideas. And I've posted a couple of videos there for feedback on some footwork ideas that I was having. But um, yeah, th there's a very small community. And do you think it's related to Jogo Lapau? I don't know. <laughs> okay, because uh, are you familiar with Jogo? Uh, okay, it's the Portuguese stick fighting. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, I don't know. There's a book by, yeah, Luis Preto is probably the best known instructor in that. And <laughs> I've, I've seen him teach and a lot of what he's doing is a lot like Longsword with the Stick. Hmm. 
Um, so that also might be an interesting, interesting place sure. to go. I yeah. think I discussed it with a previous podcast guest in episode 38 with Jessica Gomez. Or Gomez. Yeah, she, we discussed you're going to power a little bit. But oh, okay. that might be, might, might be an interesting uh, avenue for you. Yeah, yeah, I'll go to listen to that. Because it's a living tradition of like Portuguese stick fighting. Nice. And it's, it's kind of cool and fun. Yeah. And, yeah. Cool. The very few videos I've seen of different stick methods, just YouTube perusing, there's a lot of similarities between the different styles, which is kind of interesting. Right. That's what you'd expect, though. It's a stick. Yeah. Yeah, it's a stick. And there's, only, there's only so many ways you can swing <laughs> a stick around that's actually going to do any good. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. It's, it's been fun watching that for me. <laughs> okay. Now, we are actually slightly at time, and I know you have places to be like actual paying work and things. Uh, after work. <laughs> <laughs> so um, thank you very much for joining me today, Julie. It's been a delight talking to you. Thank you. This was awesome. Thank you for having me come on. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Julie. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. And you can go to guywindsor.net forward slash solo to find the new book. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It really does make a huge difference to me getting this done every week, knowing that there are people out there who really care about it. I should also mention that the patrons already have a copy of the book and if you are a patron and you haven't got your copy yet and you can't find the link for it, just drop me an email and I'll be delighted to send it to you direct. So you can join us on patreon.com forward slash the sword guy to submit questions for future guests and for behind the scenes content and basically the inside track on all the stuff that I'm doing. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Stephen Pressfield, author of The Legend of Bagavance, The Gates of Fire, The War of Art, and all sorts of other novels and non-fiction. His latest book is A Man at Arms, and he has a YouTube channel in which he investigates the warrior archetype. We have a very enjoyable conversation, which you certainly don't want to miss, so make sure you subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast from. And... While you're there, of course, please do leave a review or rate the show. All that sort of stuff really helps. But actually, what I found helps most of all is if you've enjoyed an episode, email a link up to it to one of your friends or share it on social media or basically just distribute the hell out of it so that the sort of people who like this sort of thing can find it. The internet is absolutely jam-packed with all sorts of stuff. Some of it is fascinating, some of it is awful, and all of it really depends on taste. So the, the trick is not finding a needle in a haystack, it's finding a particular needle in a whole pile of needles. So the best way, absolutely the best way, for people to find stuff they like is when it's recommended directly to them by their friends. So... Do your friends a solid and anyone who you think would enjoy the show, please share it to them directly. Thanks for listening and I will see you next week.